0: This episode is brought to you by left of boom we empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence well g'day guys and welcome to episode 5 of crisis talks you're in for a real treat here today because i'm interviewing the director of emergency management for ambulance victoria a gentleman by the name of justin dunlop justin's going to talk us through some of the measures that ambulance victoria have gone through to help protect their workforce whilst also maintaining the supply of service to the community during this extremely difficult time. You'll hear some fantastic lessons on how to apply business continuity principles to support planning for emergencies and some of the practical measures that the teams have worked through to ensure that they're able to continue the business of delivering that service to the community. The work that they did to ensure the safety and well-being of their paramedical staff resulted in zero cases of clinical contact from covid virus throughout this pandemic that in itself is an amazing testament to the vigilance and the diligence of the teams as they've planned and worked their way through this extremely uncertain period So, Justin, can you please give us a bit of an overview of your background and your role for everyone's benefit?
1: I'm the Director of Emergency Management with Ambulance Victoria. Um, I've been with Ambulance Victoria now for 23 years, starting out as a student paramedic. Uh, And for the last 15 years, I've been working in the emergency management and public event space, um, doing a range of things, also uh, doing some secondments with uh, the newly formed Emergency Management of Victoria at the time um, and with the Department of Health and Human Services uh, in order to rewrite their state health emergency response plan a few years ago. Uh, prior to ambulance, I was in medical research, um, doing some postgraduate research at the Peter McCallum Cancer Institute. And all through that time, I've also been a uh, volunteer first
0: responder with the St John Ambulance organisation. Wow. That's a, that's a pretty amazing intro. So thank you for joining us today on Crisis Talks. Uh, we've got Justin Dunlop, who's the head of Emergency Management for Ambulance Victoria. Uh, Justin, today, what we were keen to really talk to you about is a bit about what's happened throughout COVID, the lead up to that, what you did as an organisation to prepare for it, um, what it meant to your members out there whom we love and respect dearly for the work that they do every day, um, and then what it sort of meant as we're going through. So. Justin, can you give us a bit of a walkthrough of what happened when this thing started to emerge earlier this year? Sure. Thanks, Grant. And thanks for the invitation. It's great to be here. So
1: I guess if we rewind prior to January when COVID sort of took off in, uh, well, across the world, but certainly in Victoria, um, we were already facing bushfires, heat waves, smoke, and even a bit of a touch of thunderstorm asthma. So um, ambulance had been working hard from about October. Um managing a range of emergencies, um, particularly the 2019 summer bushfires um, covering about a third of the state, uh, first ever declared state of emergency. So that was a really big deal. And we had a large number of ambulance crews um, that were isolated within the fire grounds, supporting their communities. So it we were already in the middle of a very large operation uh, and coming to sort of the tail ends of that, um, but our Emergency Operations Centre was actually still active uh, for fires when we first got word from the Department of Health and Human Services uh, about the first coronavirus case coming into the state. Um, So everyone was pretty tired already um, and looking forward to sort of winding down the fire activities so we could get into sort of the recovery mode and and, uh, get a bit of rest and uh, and welfare um, going. So uh, about uh, January 20, uh, we got a call from the Department of Health and Human Services to say that there was a patient coming from China, um, still symptomatic, uh, and would need some special transport from the airport through to hospital. Now, this isn't unusual. Uh, we'd set up this process for Ebola back in 2015, and so uh, you know, it was a routine channel of communication. Um, we hadn't rehearsed it for a while, but we certainly knew what was expected. Um, and have processes in place for that. Um, and I might just point out though, the, um, the other connection is that our uh, ambulance emergency operations centre is actually inside the Department of Health's state emergency management centre, which helps enormously for collaboration. Um, and so makes these sorts of inquiries and requests uh, fairly easy and, and seamless. So uh, we did our first transfer, I think it was on the 22nd of January uh, from the airport. Now, because it was our first entry and um, there wasn't an awful lot known about the novel coronavirus at the time being novel, uh, we threw everything at it. Um, And so like most emergency agencies, we have an all hazards approach. And so we have already uh, PPE on every ambulance and we have um, higher levels of PPE for uh, chemical, biological and radiological incidents. And so in this first case, uh, we took our highest trained operators, uh, our level A PPE operators and uh, gave them a brief and um, and asked them to do the transfer through um, using all precautions and following the same special donning and doffing process uh, that we were using for Ebola. Uh, again, because it was novel, um, no one knew an awful lot about it. And so we wanted to use all of our experience for that first case in particular.
0: And... You mentioned that Ebola was probably the more recent example that you had. A lot of people use the terminology, this is completely unprecedented, this whole event. But the reality is that we've had similar style events in SARS and Ebola previously. So did that mean that that preparedness you'd done for both of those or the responses that you'd also executed in both of those particular responses were still feasible or viable or, or well and truly in people's minds today? Or did you have to really go back and revisit a lot of those lessons from the past before you really got into COVID-19? We uh, we certainly
1: learnt a lot from previous incidents. Uh, and so if you like, they were, they were dress rehearsals because they were nothing like the scale that we've seen overseas. Uh, and even the scale within Australia and Victoria um, is greater than that that we saw from H1N1 swine flu in um, 2009. Um, Then Ebola, we we only saw four suspect cases of Ebola in Victoria in 2015. So not a huge caseload, but um, the preparation required and training required for that um, certainly put us in uh, in a good place um, to understand the complexity of it. Uh, And so in fact, we've got what we call a, a bio event sub plan to our all hazards emergency response plan and it was written following the whole updated following the h1n1 event um, to capture the lessons learned then and we're by and large following that now as our playbook uh, for covid 19 um, but obviously
0: uh, on a much larger scale uh, and and for a much longer time period it would appear so when you go back and look at those sort of plans, there's obviously then adjustments you had to make. How many times have you had to adjust that plan this time around, Justin?
1: So, I mean, the plan itself we're leaving in place, even though it is uh, a little old um, mm. and some of the terminology in it is perhaps uh, a little dated, but the, the basic principles of protecting your staff, managing the demand and making sure that you've got business continuity operating um, have, have stood as well as the three strategic goals uh, of that plan, um, and it put, pointed us in the direction around how to achieve each of those. Um, but like most people, um, the the pandemic discussions were were happening all the time. Um, but I don't think anything really prepares you um, for the scale of one when it when it appears as it has. Um, so the plan itself hasn't changed, but the detailed operational arrangements that we follow day to day. Technically, we're up to version 21. Um, We're keeping alongside the Department of Health and Human Services planning. Mm -hmm. Uh, So as they upgrade their plan, we we necessarily have to do ours. Uh, But to be honest, we've had increments in that too, um, where we've found adjustments and errors and edits and so forth. Um, And uh, I've got to say, our staff have been extremely vigilant um, with uh, with any updates and changes, uh, and awfully inquisitive. as a, a new version of the plan comes out and they find something contradictory in it, for example, well, they'll certainly let us know, which is great because we get feedback straight away and we can make adjustments as we go.
0: How important is that mindset of being vigilant and inquisitive in in this particular field?
1: Look, I, I think in emergency management and in first response, it, it should be second nature. You know, D for dangers is uh, the start of our uh, basic first aid training and, and it's no different for a paramedic and no bit different to other agencies as well. So I think, you know, you've got to be vigilant or you'll get caught out in our day-to-day business. Mm. You know, occupational violence in ambulance is a big thing. Uh, And so again, you know, vigilance is the the key there uh, and awareness and and having some strategies. So um, I think, you know, the training that we provide uh, for our business as usual arrangements can be easily adapted uh, across to emergency management purposes. Uh, But vigilance is really important. Um, So uh, being prepared prior to uh, arrival, uh, and for that reason, we've had screening questions on uh, all the triple O emergency calls Mm -hmm. that have come into ambulance so that we can give our paramedics and others that are responding um, the earliest warning that there's a a potential danger, in this case, a potential COVID case. Uh, And so they'll get that over the radio or via the mobile data um, to give them an indication before they arrive um, there's also been changes during this period uh, across the health system where uh, a level of a higher level of ppe is now required for every clinical attendance um, and so you know it's a bit of a, a history lesson I guess for ambulance but when I started in the 90s um, I came out of ambulance school wearing gloves and my instructors looked at me strangely. Um, and the students that attended when I was an instructor came out with uh, safety glasses around their necks and I looked at them strangely. Um, and now we're walking around with P2 masks, safety glasses, uh, gloves, and, and quite often a, um, a protective suit as well. Um, and it's gonna become the norm because it is the norm right now.
0: When you look at those three key objectives that you had from those previous plans there, Justin, how do you balance the priority between those three that you mentioned? So the protecting staff, um, I think it was service delivery was the second one. Was that correct? Uh, demand management and- Demand and management? Continu- yep. And business continuity. How you sort of balance? What's probably more important as you're working through or how do you balance the priorities between those three objectives? Oh, look, there, there's no question that staff protection for us is number one. Yep.
1: Um, and so there, there's a range of things that, that, that might mean. Um, certainly communication is, uh, is key. Um, you, you can't treat what you don't know. Um, And so you know, getting our incident action plan out really early was important to us. So we had a draft for that first patient we were contacted about, um, and we very quickly then published that so that should we get any subsequent cases, um, we'd already started to socialize what the arrangements needed to be. So I think we had that out on the 24th of January. Um, And as you might recall, I think pretty much the very next day uh, on the Saturday, the 25th, I believe it was, uh, we had the national announcement uh, around coronavirus and, um, and various changes that were put in place. Um, yeah. So we were, we were just ahead of the game from that point of view. Uh, so communication to the staff around um, the case definition. So how do you identify a potential uh, at-risk case? Yep. Um, again, the use of protective equipment. Um, now, as I mentioned, we'd, we've got a um, reasonably high level of PPE on every ambulance as an all-hazards measure. Um, but we've got to maintain that for the period. And that's what we've seen internationally is, is um, you know, a shortage of, of personal protective equipment. Um, we were lucky that we had a cache uh, of masks. We've, we've maintained that for some time. Um, interestingly, we dipped into it for the smoke event um, oh, over yeah. December and January. Um, so we were a bit behind the eight ball as a result of that. Um, and we've been extremely lucky. Our, our supply department's been working uh, non-stop to keep the PPE supplies up through that period. So we've never run out, despite the um, the, the volume of potential cases that we've seen. Um, but again, um, self-welfare, communication with the staff about these changes so that they were aware of the the contemporary issues. Um, got a focus on mental health as well. Um, as I said, we'd, we'd come into this after a really busy summer. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that didn't get a break at all Um, So maintaining staff welfare, uh, providing for their mental health through our peer support programs and our crisis counselling unit, Um, and also in the context of an infectious disease with no particular cure or immunisation program, um, the paramedics' medical health has been a a big focus. Um, So uh, firstly, managing people that present with symptoms that... um, are consistent with COVID to make sure that they're being managed appropriately and, and getting the support that they need, um, but also to make sure that we protect the rest of the workforce. So screening at the start of each shift so that people don't come to work sick or you know, uh, knowingly or unknowingly uh, and then providing them support as well if uh, if they're not able to continue working that day. So staff protection, uh, number one, no question. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you've got to do everything else. Um, so in terms of demand management, uh, we've, we've, we've had quite a bit of work in that area. Um, Thunderstorm asthma in 2016 certainly drew our attention to rapid escalations in, in case volume. Uh, and so we've had lots of work done in the intervening years to look at how do we respond to a rapid increase in workload. Um, that's not only about increasing the number of ambulances we have on the ground, It's also about how do we handle the calls? So uh, in Victoria, as people might know, uh, the Emergency Services Telecommunications Authority are responsible for managing the Triple O calls and our dispatch, Mm -hmm. but we work heavily with them around how that works um, and how we resource uh, the various requests we get from Triple O. And so telephone triage and secondary triage, so pushing callers onto alternatives rather than sending an ambulance to everything uh, has been fundamental. Now that's not new for us. We've been doing that for about 20 years. So it's reasonably mature, uh, which puts us in uh, a good place for something like COVID um, that we've got systems that we can use to um, provide the appropriate health care to these people. Uh, And it may not always be an ambulance. It might be care in the home. It might be telemedicine. Uh, it might be, you know, someone doing the shopping for them through a, a relief arrangement, for example. Um, so so there's those sorts of demand management arrangements we can put in straight away. Um, but then work in the background around, you know, the looking at what happened in uh, Italy in particular, and New York and, and London, um, how do we prepare ourselves for that sort of extreme demand? And so we've had people working in the background um, looking at our dispatch arrangements and and how our service model might need to change uh, if we get to that point. Um, And we've also been talking to our partner agencies about how we can use their services to assist. Um, So the first aid agencies that are partners under the State Health Emergency Response Plan in Victoria, um, talking to the fire services, police service, the SES, uh, about what support they might be able to provide if we get to the point. Um, that we're running low on staff and, and, and extreme demand. Um, and we will be very lucky government supported us. We've brought forward our uh, recruitment process. So we've, uh, we've recruited or in the process of recruiting an additional 120 paramedics uh, with more in the wings. Um, we've reached out to the university students, and I think we've got around 350 or, or thereabouts that have said that they'd be interested in uh, volunteering or doing some casual work with us. Uh, as a first responder, and so we're uh, putting processes in place to onboard them as quickly as we can uh, when when the time comes, um, and we'll use those same processes for other agencies that are able to support us if we get to that point. Um, but that's an awful lot of work and negotiation that's happening in the background. Yeah, uh, and as you say, you know, in terms of how do you prioritise? Well, you, you've got to get the work done, but you've also got to have an eye to the future. Uh, and and get these other processes happening in parallel, so that you're ready.
0: And how did you how did you resource those? I mean, that's a forward plan. That's a that's really a fusion between your your current operations and your forward planning. Are you naturally structured that way, or did you have to bring extra resource or capability in to support that planning?
1: Yeah, normally our emergency operations centre would handle these sorts of things um, because they're relatively geographically focused emergencies. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're usually, you know, short-term, short, sharp. Yeah. Get it done, scaling fix, up from bottom up. Yeah, that's it. Um, but we're in for the long haul here. Yeah. And, and we were clearly, you know, it's not just a local fire in, you know, even, even the 2019 fires we've just come out of, which, you know, occupied close to a third of the state. It was still in one location. Yeah. Um, it wasn't statewide. It wasn't everywhere. And so that's a much bigger challenge. Um, And so we've had executive support. So um, under the business continuity heading, um, we've got a a COVID management team, which is basically the executives plus myself um, that meet uh, a few times a week to talk about what the current strategies are and how we're placed against them. Um, And they've built a a COVID support team, um, which basically has representatives from all of our key departments. So, you know, property, supply, finance, um, HR et cetera, um, to uh, support us in uh, in these special arrangements we need to put in place. Um, and so, for example, um, with the uh, the quarantine arrangements uh, and the um, the concern around cross-contamination, mm-hmm. um, handing over patients at hospital once we arrive uh, yeah. becomes problematic because you start walking into a hospital with a potential positive patient and you know there's obvious concerns there Um, so we've been building ambulance hubs at each of the major receiving hospitals so that we can take care of the triage and handover outside the hospital Uh, we don't necessarily need to enter at all Um, you know our paramedics can doff their PPE shower if they need to complete the appropriate paperwork restock decontaminate their ambulance all the all the things that are required especially for for this particular event um, in a specialised hub um, on site at each hospital. And that's a huge piece of work. Um, And so that um, COVID support team uh, behind the scenes was responsible for getting all of that put together, whilst our emergency management team um, kept dealing with the day-to-day, minute-to-minute issues as they pop up
0: how'd you go about managing potential disruptions to your workers? So those paramedics um, that are frontline of the demand management, um, how do you manage the business continuity components for those guys and, and working back behind the scenes?
1: So there's, there's probably two answers to that. So there's the, the operational focus and, and I'll also talk about the business focus because uh, with the stage three restrictions that we've had in Victoria for the last few weeks, Um, That's impacted on how we actually do our normal business in the office um, as well. Uh, But looking at the operational component, um, one of the big lessons out of uh, of swine flu and out of SARS, uh, looking to Canada in particular, um, was around loss of sentinel, you know, key staff and key uh, functional areas like communications and dispatch, for example. Um, And so, um, you know, we, we try to learn everybody else's lessons and uh and so we had a plan that we we put in place pretty quickly um around uh protecting our what we're calling our critical teams um so we used our business continuity arrangements to identify which teams were critical based on their minimum acceptable outage time frame uh, and then put measures around those teams uh, to make sure that they were unlikely to get uh, cross-contaminated so for example Um, Our secondary triage service and our communication service all use staff that rotate from uh, on-road roster um, into the communication centre or the referral service, the secondary triage service. Um, Now, if they're exposed to patients in the community um, with a 14-day incubation period um, and then show up in our communication centre, there is a chance or a risk that um, we'd lose our entire communication centre for a period of time. Um, So we put in measures pretty quickly to ensure that those critical teams, um, the emergency management unit, our supply team, um, our payroll team, um, were all protected from uh, contamination from the field um, and contamination from other sources. Um, So they were pretty much isolated. Um, We we were just ahead of the stage three restrictions by a week. um, But um, we, uh, we put in isolation arrangements, uh, hand hygiene. Um, uh, eventually we put thermal screening in as well uh, a on whole, a whole range of other measures to make sure that those teams uh, were protected and could remain in place as long as possible. Um, so that was done very early. We extended that to our frontline ambulance branches as well. Uh, so discouraging visitors, because we're normally a pretty social bunch. Um, but we're discouraging visitors, uh, making sure that people uh, were checked at the beginning of shift to make sure that they didn't come to work sick uh, inadvertently, um, and processes in place to manage them if they did. Um, our supply department was certainly on the wall very early. We we're onto them very quickly around what you know, where are we, how much have we got, where can we get more from. Uh, and they've done an excellent job um, sourcing things from everywhere. Um, Not always the same equipment we used to, but uh, in these sorts of emergencies, you use what's available and appropriate, and we've certainly done that. Uh, We were very lucky that, um, I I guess, being an ambulance service, we're on the cusp between health and emergency services. Um, So we've had great partnerships within the health department and great partnerships within Emergency Management Victoria and the other emergency services, um, to be able to obtain PPE from a range of uh, of channels, which has been great. But then from the business point of view, uh, we had the issue of the stage three restrictions and uh, a call for people to work from home where you can. Yeah. Um, now, we've got a, a very large back office. Uh, and so 95% of our back office ended up working from home. Wow. Um, now, we'd never done that. I don't think anyone had done that before, but <laughs> we certainly enough. hadn't. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it was fortuitous that our, uh, our IT department were in the process of rolling out new technology. So there was a lot of spare technology around, which was just a fantastic coincidence. Um, all also good, good planning, planning I'm Justin, sure. That's all right. very good planning. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it was there and available and, uh, and, and stood up very quickly, which meant that um, we could maintain um, most of our business operations um, in, a, in a remote setting. And and I know our people and culture executive director was mentioning that they ran an entire payroll via remote control, which they'd never done before. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, And, you know, uh, payroll is important. You need to keep your workers working. Now, that comes with its own issues, of course. So if you're now working from home and it's been in the media and I don't think it's lost on anybody, but the mental health challenges of being socially isolated like that uh, even though you might be in teleconferences. And I think we've all got very used to tele and video conferences as a result. Um, and I think that will become the new norm now for a statewide organisation like ours. So I think there's a lot of uh, habits that are being developed now that will hopefully maintain to be a, a much more efficient service in the future. Uh, but they're new and they're changes. And they're changes at times of uncertainty, which is never a great mixture. So um, mental health support for our, our back-end staff as well has been really important, Um, making sure that the the direct supervisors and managers are appropriately um, informed and keeping in contact and and being able to manage remotely is a a particular skill. Uh, And so there's been online training programs and support to enable the managers to be able to organise their own teams that way as well. Uh, And we're not unique in that way. A lot of companies have been doing it. But it's certainly not something we'd thought about before this.
0: The added complexity, though, for for you guys, no doubt, is that you know there was certainly a lot of fear in the community um, out there. And and from one of the other interviews I did with um, Bill Bestick, who's one of the anaesthetists up in Sydney, he said that you know within the nursing staff at North Shore there too there was a lot of concern and and real fear about about what would lay ahead and how they, not necessarily how they would respond, but what, what the challenge that they would have. How did you go about really dealing with that, uh, that fear or that uncertainty within your own workforce? It, it really does come down to
1: communication. So, you know, going back to the, the issue of staff protection again, because that's still protecting your staff. It is. Yeah. Um, in this case, uh, from, you know, a mental health concern. Um, whether it's anxiety or, or whatever it might um, manifest itself. Um, so it's about communicating well, clearly, um, and, uh, and as regularly as you can. Um, now, we, we started off with, uh, I think, our instant action plan and the case definition changed every day or two. Yeah. Um, so we were constantly communicating a change to the point where we we're getting change-weary as well um, and um, you know, trying to keep track of which changes had come in and making sure that, you know, the crews as they came on the next day were aware of the changes that might have happened overnight uh, becomes a huge challenge. Um, So we started off in our traditional manner. So um, we had our incident action plan. Um, We, uh, we utilize our company intranet to um, promote that. And we've got an incident management system as well, where it's published for, for our managers um, and obviously, company email is uh, the ubiqu- ubiquitous tool that everybody uses. <laughs> and so, we were sending instant action plans out to all users, you know, on a on a daily basis for a few days there, um, which is not a good use of resources. And it's not a particularly good way of communicating. But at that point, um, it's the, the only tool we had. Um, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we'd, we'd just come out of bushfire season Uh, In fact, we were still in it at the very beginning. And uh, during bushfire season, regardless of the activity of the fires, we run a weekly teleconference with our health commanders across the state. Uh, And so that morphed into a COVID teleconference each week. In fact, it's still running now, and will probably continue running uh, until the end of COVID. Um, But previously, it would end in April. Um, And uh, whilst we did some reviews, um staff said it'd be lovely to have this during winter but there's not an awful lot to talk about during winter for us usually uh, we're in planning mode and getting reset for the for the next summer period um but that that tool is uh, is continuing on um and we're still getting representatives from all of our regions and back offices uh, to keep them up to date with the changes that have occurred in the in the previous week and what we're looking to in the in the in the forecast period but we've also had to do some other innovative stuff and our um, corporate communications team um, had already launched an internal social web service, a social media service, uh, which is a Facebook product called Workplace. Um, and so it was already in place uh, and we were using it to uh, to disseminate information about COVID. Um, but we ended up getting a, a COVID um, specific channel set up and um, our CEO took a very strong stance that it was the way that we were going to be providing material to staff on a regular basis. Uh, we ended up doing daily videos or introducing the changes or um, talking to particular aspects that had come to light, you know, use of PPE or uh, what to do if you had a breach of PPE, changes to the case definition, um, showing up to work sick, all those key messages. Um, As they became, um, you know, to the fore, um, we had a a daily video from myself as the Director of Emergency Management um, and from our Executive Director of Emergency Operations, who's responsible for all the paramedic staff. Um, Now, uh, we've we've gone back to business as usual, uh, but for a period, there was an awful lot of video communication. Um, There were daily updates. Um, In fact, there still are daily updates around the statistics. Uh, and where we are operationally. Um, and as we do get changes uh, to our case definition um, or our protective equipment arrangements, uh, we still get changes to our incident action plan. But we're, we're trying to plan those to be once a week rather than once a day.
0: As we're transitioning now into, into sort of returning to work um, with still obviously a level of restrictions going forward, um, how are you managing that workload? Because you've had it really, like you said, through fires into this. Now you've got a lot of fatigued people, um, including yourself, no doubt. Um, how are you looking to manage yourself over that time? Or what's some of the tips that you've learned around managing your own uh, wellbeing over that time that you're going to carry forward now for future events? Well, one
1: of the things we did as, uh, as part of the critical team protection project uh, was looked at um, surge staff as well. Uh, now, fortunately, there's no wood to touch, but fortunately, we haven't needed them to date. Uh, but for example, my team's normally a team of 10 in the emergency management unit, um, and we do the bulk of the work in, in the operations centre. Um, but we've uh, we've added uh, eight extra surge staff into that mix. Um, now, we're a relatively small unit. Um, our communications area is much larger, but they've also included surge staff into the mix, which allows for more Uh, I guess, pleasant rostering arrangements. Um, So, you know, for example, our our team's running a seven-day roster at the moment still. Um, But because we've got the additional staff there, um, we can make it work for everybody in the team. So, um, again, the organisation was was quite forward-thinking in allowing us to take extra staff off the road to do these things um, because of the importance of communications and emergency management and supply um, in these in these days. Uh, as I mentioned our um, people and culture division have put together a, a welfare plan, uh, a whole lot of information and services um, chaplaincies and, and critical our crisis counselors and our peer support program um, and our peer dogs as well um, are doing the rounds visiting people following up on on incidents and just doing regular check-ins. Uh, we talk about it quite a lot. Um, in our daily video updates and in, in our weekly briefings uh, because it is important, as you say. Um, our particular team, um, we've, we've got a, a few sort of social outlets at work. Um, we do a family lunch once a week. Um, people are swapping sourdough recipes. It seems to be a thing at the moment. <laughs> um, so, you know, trying to keep things lighthearted yeah. um, and, and community-based uh, is important. Um, and then obviously you need you know, the time off. You need your days to yourself and being able to switch off and do other things, uh, which, uh, which for me is hobbies and my two teenagers and um, uh, a bit of music here and there as well to keep me grounded. Um, but, yes, certainly uh, we're in for the long haul. Uh, we expect that we'll be in this sort of situation for certainly the next six months, but quite possibly into the next year. Um, so uh, we need to be prepared for that.
0: What's been, the, what's been the measures of success over this period for you, Justin?
1: I think the, uh, the number one measure for success, if we, if we look at it uh, from a staff protection point of view, uh, to date, uh, no paramedic in, in Ambulance Victoria has uh, contracted COVID from clinical contact. Oh, that's amazing. And we've only had one of our staff actually test positive uh, from external contact uh, and they've recovered and they're back at work. Fantastic. Uh, so I think, I think that's probably the best measure of the staff protection component. Um, difficult to measure demand management because in fact, what we've seen is that the community have decreased their uh, frequency of calling triple zero. Mm. So our workload has actually gone down um, on average 20% on certain days up to 30% down. Um, which is great because it means that we can uh, provide the best clinical care and uh, we can meet our response performance obligations. Um, and it does allow then for the additional time needed to don and doff PPE and decontaminate the ambulance to the sufficient standard after every case. Um, so it does allow for that to take place, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um but it uh, it does make it difficult to measure the demand management strategies because um, the work's gone down. Um, and and our greatest concern, um, and this is probably a message to put out to to all the listeners and, and their families and, and their contacts, um, particularly in Victoria, but probably anywhere in the world, is that uh, if you're vulnerable, if you've got a pre-existing medical condition, you still need to look after yourself and you still need to seek care. And so there's... Uh, no reason at all for someone that's ill um, to not ring triple O and we're concerned that we've seen a decrease in the number of stroke patients calling we've seen a decrease in the number of chest pain patients calling um, and it's unlikely that the community suddenly got very well um, so we're concerned that there's a lot of people that are actually unwell and uh, and resisting calling triple zero and really that there's no reason for that at all um, so if you if you need help we're there to help and so keep calling uh, and we'll provide you a service.
0: What do you think that decrease, um, has really occurred? I mean, is that a, a, an element of fear there for the community, not wanting to, um, not wanting to overload the system or is it more of a fear of them uh, having contact or perceived contact with other people who are working in the system too much? Is there any sort of data you've got on why that, that decrease has occurred? I don't think we've got any firm data yet, but there's a couple of
1: factors to consider. Um, it, it's true to say that if you decrease the movement of people, you'll decrease the injury rate and accident rate. So so that's a factor. Uh, and it's a great factor from that point of view that people aren't getting injured. Um, but I think I think there is an element of concern in the community that if I go to hospital, I'm going to get sick. Um, and uh, that's certainly not the case. The health system, the ambulance service, we've We've all got systems in place to make sure people get the right care in the right place at the right time. Um, you just need to reach out for it, um, and uh, and I think there is an element of uh, in an emergency people do consider their actions. So we know, for example, during uh, the 2009 fires, uh, we had just been through in 2009 an extreme heat period, where we saw unprecedented workload at that time, and a week later. Uh, We had the Black Saturday fires in Victoria and same conditions, same heat intensity, same number of days. But in the media and elsewhere, we were hearing about these catastrophic fires that took place. and, uh, And we certainly had a decrease in our call rate at that point. So I think the Victorian community, I think the Australian community respond in times of emergency as well. So I think that's also a factor. Uh, but even so, if people are unwell, if they've got chest pain, if they've got unusual pains or symptoms, um, they still need to reach out, call O, and, and seek assistance.
0: Switching tack a little bit here, Justin, you've mentioned some of those other events over time. What's probably the biggest or the worst one that you've been involved in? If you compare this to the other, um, the thunderstorm asthma event, the 2009 fires, et cetera there, uh, what's been the more difficult one that you've personally been involved in? So they all present
1: their own challenges. Um, I think the, uh, the 2009 heat wave um, was, was unprecedented at the time uh, for the scale of the response required. Um, so, uh, you know, 570-odd uh, deaths in that four-day period, 374 of those excess for that period, um, and we were involved in most of those in some way um, in, in terms of response um and again the the nature of that emergency is the resuscitation rate and we we're very proud of our resuscitation rate here in victoria and our save rate um but the nature of the the heat emergencies uh, unfortunately um, there's not an awful lot that we can do to help Um, so that was sort of i guess our introduction in the modern era um, to emergencies and then we had the black saturday fires now we didn't end up with a a large number of casualties, thank goodness. Now there was a lot of death involved and and sadly there wasn't much ambulance was going to do about that, um, given the circumstances. Um, The uncertainty though, I think of the 2009 fire period, um, we were getting reports of hundreds of patients in various locations, um, which when we got there, uh, either they'd moved on uh, or in fact, they were just an exaggeration of, of a small situation. Um, so I think that the uncertainty uh, out of that was was the biggest issue for us um, we had h1n1 not long after that um, same year um, and that presented its own challenges because that was really our first foray into sort of the biological um, in Victoria class two is the the terminology emergency. Um, and getting uh, up to speed, making sure we had the right PPE in the right places and so forth. So, uh, and that's that stood us in good stead for, for what we're seeing now, what we're experiencing now. Um, the thunderstorm mass event was one out of the box. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, the uh, extreme demand in such a short period. So 800 odd patients in a number, of, in a, a small number of hours, um, particularly without any warning, um, as far as we knew at the time. Uh, and all extremely sick. Um, in heatwave, whilst we get an extreme, it's an extreme of, of variable patients. So There'll be those that are just done well um, with heat exhaustion that can, to a degree, manage themselves, but will help them. But in thunderstorm asthma, they were all sick and all needing ambulance and and medications and transport to hospital. Um, and, uh, and we only saw 800. There were 8,000 showed up to the hospital. So I guess that was a bit of a taste of what COVID could have been here in Victoria and we need to be vigilant that it doesn't turn out to be like that. Uh, With the uh, slow easing of restrictions, um, we're very reliant on the community working together, maintaining the social distancing. Or We'll see those sorts of things again um, from COVID, I suspect, as we've seen overseas. It has. Um, but out of thunderstorm asthma, as tragic as it was uh, for those 10 individuals that, that passed um, as a result of the that, that night, um, a lot of lessons learned. Um, we've now got um, the ability to put out emergency warnings and emergency messages uh, as an ambulance service. Um, that's unprecedented for us. Uh, we're not a, what's considered a control agency. Um, so we don't have control powers to issue warnings. Um, But as a result of thunderstorm asthma, it's been recognised that uh, in those rapidly emerging, evolving events, um, if there's an impact on the community because of uh, our service delivery, then we need to be able to tell the community. So we've got access to those systems, which is fantastic. Uh, We talked about demand management already. So a lot of work's gone into a whole range of uh, demand management strategies around how we might alter our communications Uh, how we surge up our staff, use of contractors, uh, use of the community. Um, So the Good Sam applications come around um, since then as well, uh, which allows us to recruit um, community members with first aid training to respond in the first instance. Now, we can't use them just at the moment in COVID because we'd be putting them in harm's way. Uh, But for something like thunderstorm asthma or extreme heat or some other traditional emergency, um, having community responders is just brilliant for the state, um, and demonstrates the uh, the, the Australian um, sentiment in terms of looking after each other.
0: Does does that uh, how important then is the interagency arrangements? Because you mentioned that control agency status. I'm presuming that, or um, well, I understand that Department of Health and Human Services are the control agency for COVID. Um, How important, you mentioned before, has that been that interagency coordination between you guys and those guys?
1: Well, certainly between uh, the Department of Health and Human Services and ourselves, uh, it's been fundamental to understanding the challenge. Uh, Obviously, we're part of the health system in Victoria. Um, We're a a health service, we're the largest health service being statewide. Mm. Um, And so, you know, we touch every part of the state. Uh, And in fact, we've taken on a much bigger coordination role uh, in this emergency than perhaps in others. Um, So we haven't mentioned it, but um, Adult Retrieval Victoria, who normally look after the inter-hospital transfer of the sickest Victorians from intensive care units to larger intensive care units, um, is normally a a part-time service. Um, During this period for COVID, it's turned into a 24-7 service uh, so it's expanded its hours of operation and its, uh, its capacity. Uh, but in addition to that, it's uh, it's normally a service that's requested. So a hospital will ring and say, we've got a patient that we need transferred um, and and you know our service is booked, if you like. Uh, but what's happened as a result of COVID is that the plans are now in place that Adult Retrieval Victoria will coordinate all of the intensive care movements. Okay. Uh, so not just on a request basis, but
0: actually on a planned, scheduled, system-wide basis. So based on volume, based on demand, based on access to, to different um, beds in ICU. Correct.
1: And uh, and in fact, on the national um, platform, um, the systems they've got in place are now running the National uh, Intensive Care Coordination Service as well. Um, so that's a huge piece of work that's uh, that's been done uh, as a result of, of COVID. Um, the... Um, the Victorian Stroke Telemedicine Service is there, um, but it just reinforces um, secondary triage and alternative service methods um, becoming important, um, particularly if people are anxious about leaving home, um, being able to provide them with um, at least uh, assessment and uh, and advice remotely yeah, is a huge step forward. Um, we, uh, We've engaged with the department around the coordination of uh, low acuity transport. Um, So there's uh, still about 3,000 people in quarantine in hotels as a result of the uh, international travel restrictions. And uh, if any of those people end up becoming uh, COVID positive, or in fact have entered uh, and with COVID positive on entry. at the moment, the only way to really move them is, is in a clinical setting. And so uh, the department have set up arrangements with uh, with the St John Ambulance Organisation to take care of the uh, non-ill but still COVID positive people uh, because you can't just put them in a taxi. Um, but what we're finding is that um, some of those patients are actually requiring ambulance assistance of some form. And so uh, we've taken on a coordination role uh, for all of those transfers um, to make sure that they get the right level of service. So if they just need a taxi, then we've got the St John ambulance arrangements that the department's organised. If they need more than that, we've got our non-emergency partners um, and contractors. And if they're very sick, then obviously we've got our emergency fleet as well. Um, So that's not something we'd normally do, but um, we've taken that on as well.
0: What, what, um, what does an organisation do if they have a case on site? So we're back at the, we're starting to move back into work, into return to work now. If they have a, an example of someone on site that's showing with symptoms, what, what's the broad process for, 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 for supporting those people?
1: Yeah, well, the, the, the broad process is uh, obviously um, they, they need to leave the workplace uh, and be supported um and they'd need to be tested so if they've got symptoms consistent with covid um the message for the whole of victoria is you you need to go and get tested mm. um and so there's testing facilities you know in a whole range of places uh, the dhhs website keeps a list of those uh i notice at the moment there's shopping centers
0: are running testing as well yeah. so they're, they're available everywhere super efficient it's been amazing that that even mm. that escalation that capability has been amazing too hasn't it um and so um if there's any concerns as a result of that
1: test uh, the department of health and human services will be in contact with the individual obviously mm. they'll do contact tracing to find out who they've been in contact with they'll go to the workplace and, and talk to them um if you're an employer and you're concerned then of course you can undertake cleaning um mm. and so it's no different to um in any of the general advice soapy water for hand washing uh, alcohol if you can't do soapy water uh, for the prescribed time um, same for cleaning surfaces Um soapy hot water is the best way to go but um, if you've got alcohol or, or the other approved um, disinfectants then that's the way to go um, there's really no need to test anyone that doesn't have symptoms mm-hmm. um, it doesn't really prove much other than they were negative at that moment in time yeah um, it doesn't mean that they didn't have the virus necessarily it just wasn't in the quantities that the test was going to, to show up positive so um, there's only there's only really a, a good reason to test those that have actually got symptoms.
0: Moving forward from here now, Justin, you know, we are moving back into the workforce now. What's the, what's the biggest concern for you and your team now? I, I guess we're very
1: reliant on the community doing the right thing. Um, so we've done it so far, Australia, Victoria has done a fantastic job of flattening the curve and providing that extra time for the health system to build up its reserves and its capability. In our case, to build up our demand management arrangements and um, additional staff and so forth, um, and uh, hopefully, with the lifting of restrictions, people will still maintain the 1.5 metre social distancing. Uh, remember the hand hygiene, um, and you know if they're sick, don't go to work, get tested, as we just talked about. Um, so you know, maintaining all of those new rules, the new normal, um, and if we do that, then we should be okay. Um, our fear is that that, that doesn't happen. Um, now I've got great confidence in the community because I think they've demonstrated the, uh, the willingness to do this so far. So we just got to keep in the long haul. Um, but if that does break down um, and we see a second wave uh, as we're seen in Italy or heaven forbid New York or, or London, um, then you know we'll see uh, a huge impact on the community We'll see, you know, potentially thousands of people become unwell, um, requiring some form of care, um, and you know, the ultimate outcome there may be a significant increase in deaths, and no one wants to see that. Um, so whilst we're preparing for it, so we've got a whole range of plans, as I mentioned, for demand management in place, um, and being prepared. Um, so we'll be ready for a second wave, but we're hoping it won't come.
0: One last question that I always ask every interviewee that comes on board for crisis talks, Justin is, if you had a chance to sit down with another crisis leader from either now or in the past, who would it be and why? Gee, there's there, there's lots of people that uh,
1: that you'd like to talk to. Uh, I, I guess I'll focus on the Australians because I think we've got a, a a unique characteristic. And I think, you know, we've, we've perhaps demonstrated that with COVID as well. So, um, I am a little bit of a um, student of history, so I'd be really interested to talk to John Monash. To be honest, yes, yes. I think he's, uh, you know, a forward thinker um, for his time. Um, you know, broke through a whole range of barriers that that I won't go into now, but cultural as well as intellectual. Mm. Um, so I think he'd be fascinating to talk to about how do you affect change, because he clearly had a vision. Um, but but difficult to get done. Um, I think Peter Crossgrove. I mean, he's still around, so he'd be great to chat to about um, his work you know, in East Timor, his work in Queensland, um, and and other places. Um, Professor Brendan Murphy. When all of this is over, yeah. Um, I, I sit on a couple of meetings with him already, but uh, not to the point where we can sit down and have a chat. No. Um, <laughs> but I, I you know I think the. Uh, the advice he's given and um, the, uh, his ability to influence government to do what was necessary has been outstanding. So uh, it would be very interesting to hear the, the behind-the-scenes tales there about mm. how that was achieved. Definitely. And I think if we go back to the fires, um, Shane Fitzsimmons from New South Wales would be the other one.
0: Well, um, hopefully, hopefully we'll be um, enabling you and others to connect in that regard later this year where um, we're supporting the, the ANZ Safety, uh, Public Safety Summit, which is um, being um, chaired by Fire and Rescue New South Wales. Um, so hopefully, I spoke to Kat about this the other day too. Um, and for everyone else's benefit anyway out there is that uh, later this year, uh, Fire and Rescue New South Wales are hosting the, the annual um, ANZ Public Safety Summit, which, uh, which ideally will have some of those characters involved. And, and uh, Justin, we may even hear from you again further there if all, if, uh, all goes well. Um, Sounds wonderful. I'm precluding a few things there and I'm jumping ahead, so I'm not going to put you on the spot with that one. Sorry, Justin. <laughs> but um, look, it's been a real pleasure today to hear your insights and what's been going on behind the scenes. And it's been an amazing story to hear. Um, about the planning and the level of support that's gone into continuing the service of your amazing people. Uh, we know uh, and love uh, our ambulance services in every state. Uh, we respect the work that they do every day. Uh, and hearing your tales behind the scenes today as part of Crisis Talks has been a really amazing addition for, for, the, for the podcast. So, so thank you, Justin, and look forward to keeping in touch in the future. Thanks, Grant. Take care. That concludes episode five of Crisis Talks. Over the next few episodes, we're going to be talking with different people in the sports and psychology fields to understand some of the human performance dynamics and the effect on team performance in a crisis. I look forward to bringing these episodes to you over the coming weeks.